Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. You'll have to forgive my winter voice. Perhaps you sound like me. Uh, But we'll be in Colossians chapter 3 tonight, starting in verse 22. Let me go ahead and read this passage for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for the people in this room, and I'm thankful for your church. I'm thankful for what you have done to unite us to one another and to unite us to Christ by faith. And so as we've already prayed tonight, we do pray that you would make progress in our hearts for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. I pray that you would strengthen our faith and that we would be more like you as we consider your word. Lord, help us not to leave here with a stronger sense of, of uh, duty necessarily, but rather a sense of the glory of Christ and what that means for our everyday life. So please help me and help us as we listen and consider your word tonight, I pray. Amen. Well, over the last several uh, weeks and chapters of our study in Colossians 3, we've been working out some of the practical implications of the rich theology that comes in the prior chapters of this letter to the church at Colossae. Now, I'm not going to rehash all that we've talked about, but we can summarize it with this big idea. That Colossians, that in, in the book of Colossians, Paul is concerned with helping Christians place Christ at the center of their lives. To place Christ at the center of their lives. His logic is that, well, since Christ is the very image of God, since Christ, it, is, it was by Christ that the whole world was created, and since it's through Christ that all things hold together, and since Christ is before all things, well, then we who follow Christ need to organize our lives around this central reality. The simple reality is this, that you can't call Christ as Savior without calling him Commander and Chief. Since Christ is over all of our lives, his Lordship applies to all of our lives. And that's what's going on here at the end of chapter, of chapter 3. Paul is helping Christians. He's helping Christian wives and Christian husbands and, and children and employees and masters and slaves. He's helping them make the connection of how the gospel impacts our Tuesday afternoons at 1 o'clock, as we've said before. So tonight we are turning our attention to this topic of vocation, of work. And rightly so. The author, Ann Dillard, famously said, she said, We spend our days, of course, or how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. For many of us, a large portion of our lives are spent at work. 
In fact, the average person will spend 90,000 hours at work over a lifetime. 90,000 hours. That's a lot of time. And if Christ is Lord of our life, then Christ intends to be Lord over all 90,000 of those hours. Don't you think he has something to say about those? I certainly would think so. Now, I'm pretty sure, I tried to do the calculations, but I quit, right? But I'm pretty sure that those numbers are geared towards formal careers, right? Like in the workplace. It doesn't account for schoolwork or housework or the incredible task of raising children or caring for grandchildren or aging parents. What about raking leaves or exercising? What about learning to play instruments or decorating a Christmas tree? Doesn't all that count as, as work? And I think in a, in a sense, perhaps it does. Now, we won't go into all this tonight, but we could, <laughs> we could go back to Genesis and develop a theology of work. And, and we would see there that God created work not after the fall, but before the fall. Right? So, so work is a part of God's creation, and God intended for work to be a part of our lives, for it to be a meaningful and a fulfilling, satisfying part of human existence. But like all things in God's creation, it was ruined, work was ruined by sin. In fact, work is specifically mentioned in the curse. Instead of uh, fruit, the ground now produces thorns naturally. Work has become toil and it often feels futile. Just the other day I observed this that under my wife's direction at home she did a, we, we pick up our playroom every night but she, we did like a a pickup 2.0, like a little bit more in depth where we don't just put stuff in the drawers, but we do some organizing, we do some throwing out, we vacuum and that sort of thing. And, and, and 30 minutes after we were done, Haley and I were in the kitchen and we heard a crash. And what do you think happened? Roman. Roman had waddled or strolled, whatever he does, strolled into the playroom and successfully trashed it in 60 seconds. It was incredible. And my wife was like, why do I try? What is the point? Let's just wait till the kids are seven and older, then we'll clean the house, right? Well, I could see the, I see the logic. I experienced the same thing this past weekend in my battle against the leaves of my yard. Is anyone losing that battle with the leaves in the yard, right? Uh, it was a non-windy 60-degree day in December. You remember that day? And I was enjoying being in the yard, exercising my dominion over the leaves in my yard with a steel 460 backpack blower on my back, right? It's really fun to strap machines to your body. That's, that's something I've always enjoyed. Right? And, 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 and I was blowing a few weeks' worth of leaves uh, across the yard, and it takes way too long to do in a day. I got to break it up. But I, and I had this very satisfied feeling as I looked back up the hill at the top half of my yard where the leaves were gone, looked down to the bottom where there were plenty of leaves, and I felt, I felt really good about it. Well, then two things started to happen. The wind started to blow, right? And the piles of leaves that were still sitting, you know, ready to be moved, started to blow back into the yard. And worse than that, leaves from my neighbor's yard, bless her heart, they were coming down and it covered 
the the area I had just done, right? And I was disgusted. Like what my my feeling of joy and satisfaction quickly turned to things that pastors should not say, right? And suddenly my pleasure in work disappeared and I it turned into toil. Not to mention the allergies that followed, you know, the next day. But you see, this is something that we as Christians need to understand about vocation. We stand on the other side of the fall, right? In the toil part. But we also stand on the other side of the cross. And in the cross, we know, we've learned that Christ has secured the effect of a new creation. And he is actively, he proved this in his resurrection, he's actively making all things new. Because of the completed work of Christ, he is working to restore in his people real, full, abundant life. Life to the fullest form. And we get taste of that, don't we? In relationships where love, the love of Christ is expressed. In giving and in service. We get taste of that. But it's not here yet. Life is still broken and work is still often toil. I love to work. Sometimes, right? You've probably had that experience too. We are stuck in the in-between. And even though we wait, we wait for a day when the whole world will be liberated from its bondage to decay, we have to understand that since Jesus rose from the dead, we can right now understand that he intends for us to experience the power of his resurrection in our everyday lives, in everything that we do. You see, it's not just that he will redeem us, but he is redeeming us. And we can experience that. It's not just that he will redeem our work and our vocation, but he's doing it right now. And this is his intention for your life as a Christian. And here Paul is writing to the Christians at Colossae, many of whom we can imagine had awful, menial jobs, some of whom were slaves. And, and Paul was showing them the impact that the gospel had and has on their vocations. His main point and the main point of our, uh, of our time tonight is this. Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done, even the simplest tasks that we perform by faith become acts of worship to the Lord. Even the simplest tax, tasks of work. And by work, I mean broad, right? I'm not talking, if you don't have a job, that is, I, that is just one place that you work. You, we, have, we have callings and vocations and so many different avenues of our lives. And, and you'll see that in a moment, I hope. But we'll develop this idea in the next few minutes. But I do feel like we need to do a little background. Because this is, this is a text that can be confusing, right? And we could spend a lot of time talking about this, and I'm not going to do that tonight. But I do think we need to acknowledge this text, which addresses slaves and masters or bondservants, that we need to understand that this text, which was written to first century Christians, feels very distant to us. As 21st century Christians. And if we don't understand something about what's going on in the context, then we're going to have a hard time applying this. Perhaps you've heard that some of our American uh, Christian forefathers used texts like these to justify owning and abusing slaves. 
so we don't want to fall into a dangerous trap like that. But there's a few things we need to understand. First of all, remember what Paul is doing in this book. Right? Same thing with Ephesians, which talks about slavery as well. Remember what he's doing in these epistles. Colossians and Ephesians were written to specific churches to be read and to be used in worship. Right? That's how the, that's how the letter would get to the people, as they would read it in a gathering. And, and as we've already said, Paul had a very practical theological agenda. He was writing to, he was addressing households, right? The, the, the form of a household. We've said this in the past as we started this section, uh, that, that this is often called the household code because it addresses the members that made up an, a normal, ordinary, Greco-Roman household, right? Fathers, wives, children, uh, even, even servants. Is, he was addressing all of them together. And it's helpful to understand Paul's concern here is to help Christians live the Christian life. Today. Tomorrow. That's what he's concerned with. He's, this is not a place for a political treaty. This is not where he's evaluating the civil Greco-Roman institutions, right? He's not condoning it, but he's also not trying to abolish it in, in these letters. He simply was not addressing it. His focus was on, what do you do? You follow Christ, you're in the situation, this institution exists, what do you do? I should point out, there are plenty of other places in the Bible, particularly in the prophets, where we read about God's concern with justice and neighbor love. And all those things would be applied to the first century church as well. Secondly, we need to understand how, how radically different slavery was in the first century compared to what you and I probably think of when we hear the word slavery, right? When a 21st century American reads the word slavery, we immediately think of the horrors of the American and the British slave trade, which we're aware of. And again, let me point out a few differences, right? First of all, slavery in the first century was not based on racial prejudices. That's really important to understand. This was not a racial slavery. People were not dehumanized and enslaved primarily because of the color of their skin in this institution. Secondly, and this is important, right? Slaves were not acquired through systemic kidnapping, which is the basis of the American slave trade. Thirdly, slavery was not permanent. Slaves often worked under contract, sometimes 10, maybe 15 years. Uh, but, and, and sometimes they, they sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt that they owed. Um, fourthly, slaves and slaves actually had rights. A slave could go to court against his master. Right? That is very different than the American slave trade. Slaves could even acquire slaves. I don't know how that worked, but right, they could even acquire slaves. And the point is not to justify slavery. That's not what I'm trying to do. We could talk about that later. Um, there's a lot to be said there. Uh, it's not to justify the slavery of the Greco-Roman world. It's simply to point out that, number one, slavery was very different then than what we think of. And number two, Paul's not talking about the ethics of the institution, but rather how to live inside of it. How to live inside of it. It's interesting to note, especially in the early church, we have historical evidence that shows the slaves flocked to Christianity for texts like this that dignified their lives and dignified their work. 
which is an interesting thing in itself. There's much more we could say, but let's get back to this text and the main idea, which, which, is, which is talking about the redemptive impact the gospel has on our work. And I want to I think about with you a couple of different ways the gospel impacts our work. The first way is this. The gospel frees us from the futility of work. The gospel frees us from the futility of work. One of my favorite uh, icebreakers to play with folks, you know, in an icebreaking context, is to ask, what's the worst job that you've ever had? You ever done that before? It's pretty fun, right? I mean, you'd be surprised the people that have had crazy jobs, right? Because every time I've ever played this, you know, this game, people have terrible, have had some terrible jobs, right? Especially when they're, when they're young. And, and for me, I don't know if this is the worst job that I've ever had. Probably hasn't. But I always share the story of my shortest employment, when I was in high school, my sister uh, got, got me a job um, doing data entry, right, typing into a computer for Hanes, Hanes brand textiles, right? And uh, the agreement was for me, I was going to be paid 25 cents a card, these handwritten survey cards, to type it into the computer, right? and there were customer surveys. So I agreed to this, and then I realized I'd made a mistake, because there were a couple of problems. Number one, the computer program was terrible, right? That's whatever. But number two, uh, I was really slow. I did about six to ten an hour. That means I was making $1.50 to two fifty an hour. I'm like, I don't think this is going to work out for me. But that's not the worst part. The cards that I were, was filling in were... I had a specific demographic of women, 65 years and older, giving feedback on their underwear. And so I had very detailed descriptions of how uh, elderly women uh, interacted with their underwear and what they liked and what they didn't like. And I was making $1.50 an hour. I don't even think I got a paycheck. I think I made $8, but, right? And I quit so fast, right? And, and, and you know, that aside, I've worked a job that I was miserable in for, like, years. And I know what it's like to be in a job that feels miserable. You don't have to be in a dead-end, miserable job to relate to this feeling though. All of us have experienced elements of work that seem so mundane and so miserable that it seems unbearable, right? That's why half of country music is about getting through the work week, right? I mean, you know this feeling or or getting through the day or just surviving. We understand that. And I bet we could use our imagination to just try to picture some of the work that the Colossians might have found themselves doing in, in a time before plumbing and before running water, right? We can just imagine. It's amazing to me that people have spent their whole lives in a coal mine, right? We can understand only by imagination. But look what Paul tells these folks. He says in verse 22, bond servants obey in everything, It's an important word. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Notice that Paul calls for professional obedience in everything. Do you see that word? In everything. And then again in verse 23, he says, it's another way to say in everything. He says, whatever you do. 
Whatever it is that you do, no matter what kind of work that you're in, no matter how mundane the task is, you can do this, Paul says, fearing the Lord. That, that's, that's, a, that's an awe and a respect of God that motivates you. I think that's what that means in this context there at the verse, in the verse 22. And then again in verse 23, he says, do it for the Lord, not for men. Now that is a radically different work ethic than what we normally have, right? Working for the Lord and not for men. Paul is showing us how the gospel brings dignity to all vocation. To all vocation. Pushing a broom for the man is just pushing a broom. But when you push a broom for Christ, that's worship. You can push a broom for the man, for Christ, and suddenly the same job, the same misery becomes worship, which has eternal consequences. Suddenly the mundane becomes glorious. Suddenly the dull becomes eternal. Work done for the Lord becomes worship. Work becomes a chance for us to reflect, often to pagan co-workers and pagan bosses, to reflect the ways and the glory and the character of God. Work becomes an opportunity to serve other people for their good, whether that's your employer or whether it's your customer. If you make a product, make a good product. If you have service, have a good service. To do that all for the good of people and for the good and the glory of Christ. You may know that Martin Luther uh, wrote quite a lot about this during the Reformation. It was one of the great outcomes of the Reformation. Uh, It was during a time that there was a very broad distinction between sacred work, right, church work, and secular work, right? And so it was a time where the clergy were seen to have a calling from God that was incredibly important, but the milkmaid did not. She had no calling and therefore her work was was meaningless. But Luther came along and corrected that error. Let me give you a paraphrase of uh, of one of his quotes. I've changed it quite a bit, but it was influenced heavily by Luther. When a mother goes ahead and changes a diaper or performs some other menial task for her child in Christian faith, God, with all of his angels and creatures, is smiling. Not because that mother is changing a diaper, but because she's doing it in Christian faith. Do you see the difference? Suddenly, mundane work, even insignificant work, such as cleaning a house with small children or blowing leaves in the wind or filling out survey cards, suddenly it's not about the work itself, but it is about pleasing God. All work is a calling. It's a calling to honor God. But one of the ways that we can understand this and one of the ways we can really be helped in this is to recognize God's design for work. That that God has created the world in such a way that work is necessary for human flourishing. Just imagine if all of the uh, trash, trash service folks went on strike. Imagine two months from now what that would be like, right? Work, all work, menial work even, is necessary for human flourishing. I heard Tim Keller say, if someone does not wipe off your kitchen counter, everyone in your house will die. (laughs) Right? Because hygiene is essential for living and for flourishing and for life. So we need to see the dignity that is inherent in all work. 
and even the grace of God in it. Again, this is so interesting to me. Martin Luther uh, was, was, was commenting on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, in the context of work. And he said, you know, the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, right? And often when we pray that, you know, we're saying, okay, God, please provide for me and thank you for providing for me in the, in the past. And that's good. But think about all of the ways that we could praise God for his provision. Think about how we can recognize his sovereignty as he answers that prayer he has for me every day of my life, given me the bread that I need. Just think about it like this. God answers that prayer through the work of a farmer who planted and harvested the grain. Then, of course, that, that, it was taken, that grain was taken to a plant and processed where they take all the gluten out, right, for some folks, right? Uh, and then, of course, the baker baked it. And then, of course, there was a truck driver who delivered it, a merchant who sold it, a busboy who, or a stock boy who stocked it. And there's a banker that financed the grocery store. And there was a, a credit card company that processed the transaction. And there were marketers that advertised the bread and a power company that kept the lights on, right? All of that was involved in getting daily bread. God in his providence has ordained all kinds of work for the sake of human flourishing. And we take part in that as we work. Grain needs to be grown. Bottoms need to be wiped. Software needs to be debugged and brochures need to be designed. Why? For the glory of God, yes. But also for the good of others. I'm going to give you a quick preview. Uh, We're starting next week. We're going to announce, we're going to begin signups for our new equip classes starting in the spring. And one of the ones I'm really excited about is that we are doing a uh, a full uh, 13-week study on the gospel at work, the gospel-centered life at work. And we, I'm not teaching it, but we, we will explore this in a lot of detail. And it's really, really interesting and helpful. It's fantastic material. So, so plug that away uh, if you want to think about, because the implications here are, are so many, right? The gospel-centered life at work. But you see, in the gospel, the gospel breaks down the distinction between the secular and the sacred. The CNA that empties bedpans in faith can glorify God, I would argue, just as much as the preacher in the pulpit. Emptying bedpans can glorify God exactly as much as the preacher in the pulpit. And I know preachers, and I think sometimes the CNA glorifies God more. All that is done in faith. The scriptures say, whatever you do, work heartily. Isn't that a good word? Right? If I asked you to think about your day, you, you know if you worked heartily. Right? You know what I mean? Or like maybe that 30-minute burst of energy. <laughs> you spend 45 minutes trying to like get going and then you have that hearty work and then you kind of fade away. For, uh, you, you know that time, but we're called to work hard. Work heartily it's for the Lord. Martin Luther King Junior, not Martin Luther this time, but Martin Luther King, he said it like this. If it falls your lot to be a a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept and kept his job well. 
Do you see how many of the implications of this are? I want to mention a few more of them. A second implication from all this, and it really flows from the first, is so the gospel brings dignity to all of our work. God, God gives dignity to our work or frees it from its, uh, its futility. But the gospel also frees us from selfish work. It frees us from selfish work. Paul says in verse 22 that our work is not to be eye service. What a cool picture, right? We know what that is, <laughs> right? Uh, not as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Do you hear what he's doing? He's taking away the appearance of work to the way you actually work, right? Suddenly now, work is not about pleasing a boss for your own good, right? That's what I service is. I want, I want my boss to see what I'm doing and think that I'm valuable and think that I'm doing a good job whether or not I'm doing it, right? But Paul, is, he's, he's moving that away. So suddenly, work is not about a paycheck. It's not about primarily keeping a boss happy. And it's certainly not about personal fulfillment. And it's not about how easy your life is or how hard your life is. Instead, the gospel frees us up to work for the good of others. And friends, this is exactly what Christ did. I was thinking, we read about this, and if you're on the CBR plan in Matthew chapter 12, about how, how Christ did not come to draw attention to himself. He was about the Father's business. And he made an effort to keep the attention there. Christ did not come to draw attention to himself through his healing and his miracles, but instead to pour out his life, to sacrifice his life for others. Think about how much Jesus did not to draw attention to himself, not to get the glory that he deserved, right? He even emptied himself. And he even went to the cross so that others might flourish. It's not people-pleasing. It's certainly not eye service. That is real. Jesus said to them in John chapter 4, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus was all about pleasing the Father. And his work was so sacrificial that it led him to a cross and to the end of his life. And so for us, friends, the love of Christ compels us to lay down our lives for others in our work. Employees, young mothers, even retirees have thousands of opportunities to spend your minutes in such a way as to pour out your life for others. Suddenly, I'm not working to please my boss now. Suddenly, I'm not working to gain approval or recognition. Suddenly, I'm not worried about doing as little as possible because the gospel has freed me from selfish work. The, uh, the course will explore that in a lot of detail, so I encourage you to, to think about that. You see, Paul comes along and says, your work is not primarily to pre please your masters now. It's to please Christ. It's not to please your children, Right? I've seen, have you ever seen a parent serving their child and the child does not appreciate it at all? And it's like, what's the point? <laughs> to please Christ. To please Christ. Do you see how the gospel works here? Do you see how the gospel frees us from overworking? Right? I have that tendency sometimes <laughs> to overwork. To, to, work, to workaholic, workaholism. Workaholicism? Is that the word? Workaholism. Working too much, right? Y'all got it. Well, look at verse 23 and 24. Look at this. 
It says we are to work heartily. Why? So that people will notice? So that we can get ahead? So that we can get that promotion? So you can get into that school? No. All that matters is what Christ thinks. So we are freed up from overworking because we are now concerned with Christ. So, so here's what we need to do. Take the energy, the talents, and the time that God has given you. Work hard. And then don't worry about what other people think. That is incredibly freeing. Do your best and then don't worry about what other people think. The text explicitly says, Christ will reward you. That's your reward. So do your best and then relax. Go home. Spend time with your kids. Don't check your email. The gospel frees us from overwork. But the gospel also frees us from underwork, right? From laziness. I struggle with that from time to time too. How? Well, because Paul says, hey, your real boss is not your boss. It's God. You have a master in heaven who is always watching. So you got to work hard because he sees you and he will reward you. The gospel frees us from all these types of selfish work. A third implication from this is the gospel frees us from bitterness in our work. From bitterness in our work. Life is not fair. And work especially is not fair. I know you've experienced this. You may not get paid what you deserve. You may not get the recognition you deserve. You may be falsely accused. You may work harder than others with no recognition. You might be better at your job than they are and they get paid more. You might do the right thing when they're taking shortcuts and then they're praised and you're criticized. But look what verse 24 says. God will reward those who are serving him. And then in verse 25, he will judge those who do wrong. I think this principle applies not only to matters of injustice, but perhaps even to the futility that we face on earth. Your work done for the Lord will not be wasted, even if it's wasted on earth. Even if the work you do is wasted or discarded, you can trust that the Lord will produce fruit from it. I was thinking today at, uh, at a previous job, I spent at least 30 hours, maybe more one week, uh, designing some new uh, marketing materials for my company. We had these, these big signs, and we had some, and I thought they were ugly. And uh, I don't know much about graphic design, but, but they told me, hey, why don't you design some new ones? So I was kind of teaching. I knew a little bit, and I was kind of teaching myself. And, and man, I worked really hard to, to get to, to design multiple really nice, signs, right, to replace these old terrible ones. And it was out of my comfort zone, and, and, and it, was, it was hard, but man, I was really pleased with the results. I was proud. I was so proud of the work I'd done. I couldn't believe that I'd done it, right? I haven't been able to replicate it. also haven't taken that much time, but I was really pleased. And, and the signs were done in time for, for this huge conference. My company had this big, extremely important conference uh, that came up every couple years, and we were pulling out all the stops. And the owners of the company were going to be there and be very involved with that. And so I was going to have a chance to have some FaceTime with the owners, right? With my big old signs that I was going to be sure that they noticed. And so, uh, man, I, they came and we bought them. They came in the mail. I was so excited. They looked so good. I like put them up in my office and you know was inviting people to come look at them and stuff and and uh, and so when we were at the conference I I was kind of you know hanging around near the bosses and dropped a few little hints right 
about the work I'd done. I was like, oh, you're going to like them. I, I, man, it was tacky the more I think back on it. Right? But, but I, I, was, I was getting them excited and getting them ready for it. Well, I had to leave the room to go do something somewhere else. And, and, and I came back to the room. And the conference had begun. And I saw my signs. The problem was, is they were the old signs. Someone had grabbed the wrong signs and put those put those up, and and my uh, the the owner of the company had had saw me saw me in the hall and said Nathan I saw the signs and um yeah good good job I was I was like well I thought you'd be more excited and then I saw those are the wrong signs those are the ugly signs I redesigned the signs and I never saw them get used the whole time I was there I never saw the signs come out of the closet, right? Now, as I look back on the incident, well, I mean, I stewed for hours. I told everybody. I, was, <laughs> I didn't design those. You should see the ones I designed. Oh, man, I was such a kid then, right? Um, but, but looking back on the incident, I'm pretty sure now that I could say I probably wasn't working for the Lord, but I was probably being an eye pleaser, right? But I think we can all relate to these types of frustrations, You see, for the Christian who views his work as a calling, we see it as a chance to worship the Lord, and so we can rest assured. Nothing, nothing that is done for the glory of Christ will ever be wasted, will ever be regretted, and will ever go unrewarded. Let me say that again. Nothing that is done for the glory of Christ will ever be wasted, regretted, or unrewarded. So work hard to the Lord. He is just. He is just. We can conclude with this reminder here in chapter 4 verse 1. Where Paul turns and he, he speaks to masters. It's not only the vulnerable who are called to submit to the Lord. Wives, children, slaves. But the most powerful. All fall under his authority. We see that in his, his commands to governors and nations all throughout the Bible. Just as we saw in verse 19, masters and employers are just like husbands and fathers in that they, they have authority, but they are ultimately called to submit to the authority of God. Their authority exists under the authority of God. And you see, as it all comes down to it, we recognize that all of us are bondservants. All of us are servants. All of us are slaves of the Lord. In his service, for his glory. So may we be like Christ, faithful, sacrificial, and accomplish the work that we have been sent to do, trusting in the inheritance that is to come. And we can look to him for our failures. Isn't that a comfort? So go into your workplaces, go into your home, and work heartily for the Lord. And ask him for help when you struggle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words of comfort, for your words of encouragement, for your words of correction, and for your words of admonition. Help us to take this command to heart so that in whatever we find ourselves doing, we would do it with all of our might, working as unto the Lord. Help us as we go to be the best employees, the best mothers, the best grandparents in all the world because we are working for you. Then we'll be a blessing to the nations. Then the nations will see that you are Lord. And then perhaps many of them will be saved. Help us as we go. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.